0: 2024 is here. And with that, the third season of English uh, version of War Diplomacy has arrived, your trusted podcast on international relations and geopolitics. My name is Fabio Almada. I'm speaking to you right here from the heart of the European Union. And I'm joined today by my co host, Armis Sinke, which is also located here in Brussels as well. Armis, how are you today? And I don't know, do you have any New Year resolutions for 2024?
1: Hello, Fabio. Excited, as usual, to record a Bora Diplomacy episode. My New Year's resolution is to look less on, on my phone. I think it's quite incredible how much time. Basically, all of us uh, are spending every day looking at our screens, uh, try to be a little more active instead, go to the gym, go for a run. And I always try to use these opportunities to listen to some good podcasts So maybe a nice recommendation for our listeners to try that out as well. But um, yes, let's go into the season, season three. What can our listeners expect here? Most importantly, we will try to provide you with a fresh episode twice a month. And as before, we will regularly invite guests to complement episodes and to benefit from their expertise. In terms of content, I I would like to stress that our most important point of reference will be the question of power. At War Diplomacy, we always try to analyze which actors possess the most power, analyze how power has shifted from one actor to another, and what factors determine these shifts. This is the red line that we want to explore in every episode. And in this season, or starting from this season, we want to give this aspect even more emphasis. So we will talk more about potential wars, uh, nonviolent methods to influence national governance, but also about new technologies, um, upcoming politicians, uh, the economy, and all other factors that influence the balance of power in this world. And as usual, you will be able to access all of this information on your preferred podcast platform and on social media. We also just launched a new channel on Threads. And um, so this is this new platform that Instagram came up with to copy X. Um, So make sure to follow us there as well. And finally, uh, I have an exciting uh, announcement for this season. We are joined by a new host, Valeria, and we are thrilled to have you here. A very warm welcome to you. Uh, bienvenida a Warrior Diplomacy. We're, light- we're delighted to have you on board. How are you?
2: Hi guys, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be part of Warrior Diplomacy and to kick off this new exciting season uh, with you.
0: We are really excited, uh, Valeria, to have you here. Uh, For those that do not know her, she's another national from Spain. She studied criminology and later she did a master's in security studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Her area of focus is mostly terrorism and extremism, and she has a a quite interest in the role of social media technology. She's now living there in Washington, and she works for the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a think tank that focuses on countering extremism and disinformation worldwide. So, Valeria, I think those are really, really interesting topics that will be important trends in uh, 2024 and the years to come. So we're really, really excited for that. But anyways, guys, with that introduction behind us, let's dive into today's topic that, as you can see by the title, it's uh, election year, the year that the world votes. Uh, and while contemplating comp- uh, how to start the season, we thought how we could address all these significant trends that will happen in 2024. And uh, we also don't want to just merely skim the surface. And after careful consideration, we said, what could be an interesting way to talk about the most pivotal trends of 2024, uh, all these elections and all those all these things that will come up without being too big? So maybe, Valeria, you can give us a little explanation of how we're going to talk about these 70-plus elections that will come up in 2024 without being too big.
2: Yes. So as you said, Fabio, rather than focusing on individual elections one by one, especially for the sake of time, uh, we have structured the episode in three distinct blocks as We usually do. And the first block will explore the various categories of governance set to elect leaders this year. The second block will delve into the specific types of election influence. We will look at what those election influence operations look like, what distinguishes them, and have some examples. And then uh, lastly, we are going to look at emerging phenomena or new trends that are going to shape elections this year. Uh, And there's a lot of discussion about how artificial intelligence will change the landscape of information operations. Um, So again, just three blocks looking at the phenomena or the trends that will give us an idea of how to look at all the elections that are happening this year.
1: Finally, before we start the episode, I wanted to highlight um, What an important topic this is, because it's not just a couple of countries voting. It's basically half of the world's population that will vote in 2024. That's over 4 billion people out of the 8.1 billion that are on this planet. And this is the biggest election year in history. And it will, of course, have huge implications for world politics within a short period of time. So policies of major countries can shift 180 degrees. People possessing a lot of power may become irrelevant in a matter of days. So um, as I've teased, we will talk about power. Um, This is starting from the first episode.
0: All right, guys, so as we kick off this first block, uh as Armies just said, there's more to democracy than just going to the polls. Uh, yes, some elections will, will not be fully free and fair. Some will not really have meaningful influence in changing governments. So even though, theoretically, half of the world is going to go and vote, some countries, maybe their results will not even change that much right so i think that in this far first part of the episode we can talk about these four categories of models of ruling a country that we've uh, taken a lot of influence from the economics intelligence unit the democracy index that calls about four different groups right so that's full democracies flawed democracies hybrid models, and authoritarian regimes. So maybe Valeria, why don't you start with the brighter side of things and talk about those first two categories?
2: So full democracies uh, are the nations where civil liberties and fundamental political freedoms are not only respected, but they are also reinforced and strengthened by a political culture in that country. Um, and these nations have a valid system of governmental checks and balances. There is a strong division of power, independent judiciary whose decisions are enforced, governments in general that function adequately. And diverse and independent media, which is uh, also important to consider that freedom of information flows. So these nations have only limited problems in democratic functioning, but overall, the institutions and the political culture is in place for it to be a full democracy. Uh, And some examples of these full democracies that will head to the polls this year are the UK, the European elections, Taiwan... Uruguay and Mauritius, which is a small island state next to Madagascar. Then there is flood democracies. These are nations where elections are fair and free and basic civil liberties are honored, but with some issues. So for example, there may be some limitations in media freedom. Uh, There might be some minor suppression of political uh, opposition or critics. And there are cases where there is not enough accountability about the the government or enough investigations about what's internally going on. So these nations have uh, significant faults in other democratic aspects, including underdeveloped political culture, low levels of participation in politics, Um, high levels of distrust, and issues in the functioning of governance. And these flawed democracies, some examples of of those countries that belong to this category and will be voting this year, are Indonesia, Brazil, the US, India, Panama, and South Africa. Uh, Again, this is subject to different ideas, but it's the way in which these categories by the Economist Intelligence Unit and the Democratic Index were distributed. And just to make one point here, full democracies and flawed democracies, there are, I think it's 2 billion people that belong to democracies that will be voting this year out of the 4.1 billion that will be voting. So it's only half of them that belong to these categories.
1: Some of our listeners may be surprised that the U.S. is not a full democracy. In our common perception, uh, the U.S. is like the mother, the first democracy to exist. Why do you think experts have chosen or have designated the, the US in this specific category of flawed democracies, Valeria?
2: So that's a really good question, Aramis, and I have to say, I was I was also a little bit uh, surprised to see that. But I mean, I think in the definition, it makes sense, right? These two groups are nations where elections are fair and free, and there are basic liberties. So I think it's a matter of how those divisions of power exist, and how well enforced they are. And I think in the US, for example, the biggest the biggest flaw that comes to my mind is the way the US Supreme Court is politically designated, and it helps advance the agenda of those in the executive power. Uh, And we saw that, for example, with the reversal of Roe v. Wade, uh, which affected abortion rights in the US. So there is that division of power is not that clear. And then also, I would say, it's a big part about the political culture of the country, as we said, between these two categories. And I think the Political culture in the U.S. has been uh, very eroded in the last years. There's more distrust. There's lower levels of uh, participation. There's uh, a lot of people that don't even believe that those in power are making the right decisions. I think it went from public trust in government is near historic lows. Fewer than two in 10 Americans say they trust the government in Washington to do what is right. So I think that that speaks for itself about the erosion of that political
0: culture. I could not agree more with you, but there, I think it's no mystery what's happening in the U.S. I mean, we saw that in 2021 20, uh, with that insurrection in the capital. I mean, if you would think of a country where where uh, democracy is respected, where there's a peaceful transfer of power, we were really close for that maybe not happening there, right? So why, how could we put the U.S. Uh, in, in, the, in the full Democracy category where things like that are starting to happen, and if we, I, I think that we will not go more into into details of of the current pre campaigns and what's happening with Trump, but when the most likely Republican nomination for the president is dealing with so many. Problems with uh, the judiciary. I mean, I think that tells a lot of, of how that institutions are having a, a blow in the country. And Valeria, uh, you talked about Indonesia, Brazil, India, Panama, South Africa, and the US. Those are huge, huge countries. And I think that it's really particular that we have a keen eye on those things to come in these countries. If we jump into the other side of the spectrum, hybrid models, and authoritarian regimes. In hybrid models, uh, those are countries that have uh, regularly frauds in their elections that prevent them from being fair and free. Uh, A lot of times, governments apply pressure on political opposition. Uh, Judiciaries might not be that independent. There's corruption, there's harassment uh, on the media, and then there's all those things relating uh, with the rule of law. In this category, we could include Bangladesh, we could include El Salvador, Pakistan, Tunisia, and a couple interesting cases, of course, is my home country of Mexico and Ukraine. So also important nations we have to have on the eye for 2024. And lastly, we can mention authoritarian regimes. I think these uh, we are quite aware what's a, uh, an authoritarian regime, but these are countries where the political pluralism is nearly non-existent or really limited. These are countries often uh, composed by monarchies, uh, dictatorships, and, you know, just ways where democracy has a little significance for uh, decision-making, right? So, libals, libals, civil liberties are usually abused. And, yes, elections uh, sometimes are just sham elections, right? The media is often state-owned or controlled by a, a particular ruling regime. And the judiciary is, is uh, basically non-existent or not independent at all. There is censorship and suppression of criticism, Uh, tends to be the case. And here we have uh, countries such as Venezuela, Rwanda, Belarus, uh, Jordan as well, some say, and uh, Russia, of course, uh, which uh, we can predict, I think it would be a safe prediction to say Putin will win the elections in Russia. (laughs) These are the four uh, main categories for the democracy index. I don't know, Aramis, if you have any uh, opinion on that, do you think this is quite uh, a reasonable categorization or what's your view on this topic?
1: I just wanted to make a final point about uh, power again, because traditionally we have always considered democracies as strong and powerful, mainly because their free systems allow for a thriving economy. But due to the rise of authoritarian states and new technologies, I think it, it is fair to say that their power is towards democracies is increasing. This shift um, has allowed for an increasing polarization of society in this democracy. As Valeria has mentioned, the trust in the democratic institutions is decreasing. And we're also seeing that the authoritarian model is able to uh, generate a certain economic um, progress, uh, As we've seen in China, for example, 500 million people lifted out of poverty. Let's take the European Union as an example. Most member states are full democracies. Elections are free and fair. And the political systems have been stable since the Second World War in Western Europe and the early 2000s in Eastern Europe. And now governments increasingly observe that the trust in them, but also the trust in the political system is eroding. On one hand, this is reasoned with the authoritarian regimes influencing the elections and influencing those countries in general. And on the other hand, it's uh, new technologies, namely social media, that um, make a change here. We will talk about that in more detail in the third section. And interestingly, hybrid and authoritarian regimes, initially, initially also struggled with those new technologies. Remember the Arab Spring, when many authoritarian leaders were ousted in the Middle East. But then the game has gradually changed. The authoritarian regime has become aware of the foreign interference, of the power of these new technologies, of the role of the Internet. They um, started to restrict the access. And then these um, hybrid and um, authoritarian regimes manage to maintain their power. But this is not possible in the West because the free flow of information is one of the founding principles in liberal democracies. And it's also the reason why these democracies have become wealthy and prosperous in the first place. So they, they are struggling to deal with these technological changes. And authoritarian countries are exploiting that. We will talk about the most powerful countries in in the following section. The consequences have been visible. I mean, Russia played a huge role during Brexit, the election of Donald Trump, several coups in Africa. Their power has really increased tremendously. And and this is a huge change we're, we're seeing in the 21st century.
0: Uh, something that comes to my mind is this phrase uh, referred to as war by other means. And I feel like influencing elections is a way that power, that geopolitical power is expressed in a different way, right? You do not need to invade a country anymore to change the way that country is set. Uh, I mean, if uh, I just think of an example and how uh, Russia has tried to interfere with Ukraine in in years, it's a way to show how they wanted to, to, to do changes in the country without actually intervening. I mean, 2022, things changed a lot, right? But you get the idea. And I think uh, what uh, we want to, to express in this uh, block two, which is uh, to talk about how uh, there's these countries that we know that use different methods to influence uh, elections, right? So I think, guys, uh, with that being said, we can just jump into block two and talk about that issue.
2: So, as you mentioned earlier, Fabio, many countries have long tried to influence elections in in other countries around the world. Uh, sometimes it may be in favor of a specific candidate that aligns with the, that country's agenda. Some other times it may be simply to disrupt the form of government that is in place, and sometimes without a specific goal, but to promote uh, values that align with one's nation. And I think. Here, there are many different types of election influence, and it's important to find different frameworks to look at them and distinguish them. I'm going to classify them based on four categories or sort of four questions that we need to ask ourselves. Uh, The first one would be, what is the objective that this election influence campaign is trying to pursue? The second one would be, what are the methods that they are using? The third, and I think this is one of the most important ones, is whether there is transparency and accountability behind that election influence and the last one is about the values that they are trying to promote and these are sort of the questions that we need to ask ourselves when we look at different types of election influence
1: and how concretely do those categories allow us to differentiate between those different forms of influencing elections
2: so i mean again it's a it's a pretty subjective matter for some. This is why I think it's important to ask these questions, because sometimes those distinctions are not clear. And I think with these questions, we can really distinguish between different types of election influence. So I'm going to go into the different categories, Aramis, and then hopefully this will make more sense. So the first question that I said was, what is the objective that these strategies are trying to To pursue? Are they trying to pursue strategies that are focused on promoting certain values, such as democratic principles, media freedom, freedom of speech? Or are they influence operations aimed to pursue specific political agendas or undermine uh, specific adversaries?
1: So, isn't this like the, the perfect example for the Western approach to differentiate between their version of influencing other elections? And um the sort of evil other version, the Russian-Chinese way to influence elections. For example, the US argues the way we do it, it's fine, we will we make the world a better place by influencing other countries, but the way the Russians do it, it's like subversive, illicit. And what I'm wondering is that aren't these labels a little ambiguous? And how can how do these um, forms of intervention, really, how, how can we differentiate them?
2: Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. I think this is like the definition of terrorism when, when we say that one's terrorist is another's freedom fighter. And I think that here is when the next three questions will really uh, shed some light on this. So the methods they use was the second question, I think they make a big difference, right? Are we talking about election influence operations that use disinformation, propaganda, cyber operations or other type of uh, manipulative and deceptive? techniques? Or are they based on supporting media organizations on the principles of freedom of press and fact-based and accurate reporting? And this leads me to the third uh, form of classification, which is, is there transparency and accountability behind these, these election influence activities? And I think this is the biggest question, because a lot of times influence operations lack transparency. They are overt. They use social media bots, for example, Whereas other sorts of election influence are guided on the principles of accountability and transparency because those are precisely the values that they are trying to promote. And this leads to the last question, which is what are the values they are promoting? Usually, those that are less transparent and accountable are trying to promote authoritarian values. And the ones that are more open and transparent are the ones that are trying to promote democratic values because those values are centered around freedom of press. Uh, freedom of thought, freedom of speech. So those objectives that they are pursuing are at the core of their values and they are pursuing them in a transparent and accountable way. It's kind of a full circle. Um, so now Aramis, you tell me if you think that these these categories made it a bit clearer. Of course, there's some gray areas. And and again, I think some people may may think that they are all the same and we are just seeing them differently based on where we are located in the world. I think this is a good way to set some framework of understanding.
1: I, I think that's a fair point to make. I mean, of course, it, it's it's sort of a political instrument to call one kind of influence, election influence, um, moral and another kind immoral, illicit whatever. But objectively, there is a difference whether there's a democratic country trying to influence elections or whether there's an authoritarian state trying to influence those elections. The methods, the modes of accountability, these things are just fundamentally different if we compare the the countries. But um, I would suggest that we move on now. And um, with having this distinction in mind, we try to uh, identify the election influence superpowers in this world. Um, And I think the best way to do this is to give uh, is to first of all name the states, of course, but then. Go on with like a, a good example that shows how powerful these countries are. Um, Fabio, you prepared the example of China. Can you tell me how the Chinese have uh, influenced um, elections
0: in the past? Yeah, absolutely, Hermes. I think it's uh, one of the clearest examples, and it's really relevant due to the case of Taiwan, which had elections recently. And as many are aware, uh, Taiwan is uh, caught in these geopolitical crossfires since pretty much the Second World War. In every aspect, it functions as an independent country, but it does lack uh, international recognition, right? China perceives it as an integral part of its own territory with the intention of reunification. even if it comes to military intervention, right? But Beijing prioritizes drawing Taiwan closer without restoring to military action. So that's when election intervention comes into play. And thinking about these four uh, questions that Valeria has just explained to us, I would say that objective has a clear geopolitical agenda, which is this reunification with the mainland. And you might ask yourself, what methods do the Chinese do? And that's uh, really interesting as well. They use a combination of cyber warfare, disinformation, economic coercion. They usually spread online content about conspiracy theories about this uh, party, the one that actually won the elections, the one that's, they are more pro-independent, but without claiming independence. It's a weird way to to look at it, but they respect the status quo, which is, we are not Part of, of of China, right? Which was the party that they did not want to succeed. There was the other one, the KMT which uh, was uh, calling more for more dialogue with Beijing, which was the party that they wanted to 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 win the election. So uh, fake polls was another thing that they were promoting online as well. Uh, they also would say online that uh, Taiwan was preparing more submarine production, uh, that they were getting ready for war, and that uh, young people was going to be constricted to this war. So uh, that's some of the ways that Beijing tried to pressure Uh, This election, right? Uh, When we go to the next uh, question, which was talking about transparency and accountability, I would say there was none. I mean, China, of course, we know it was them throwing all these, um, all all these strategies towards that that Taiwanese election, but it was never clear. I mean, this is uh, the main part of this strategy, right? So for it to be underneath, like what's what would be commonly discussed for these things to be there online in the discussion, but I mean, us as analysts, we know who's behind them, but not free to be clear there. And then the last one, the, the values that I would say China has been trying to promote, I would not, I, I don't know, I would say it's something related to peace over war, right? I, I think to sell the message that uh, we are one, same people, even though as we know, as we as we value and, and we appreciate the democratic principles that Taiwan stands for, we are against, right? Because uh, I would say, in my opinion, China represents completely the other spectrum of, of political openness and liberties. So uh, I think it's in the interest of, all the people that support democratic values to fight against what China wants to do with Taiwan. And uh, this is one of those places where geopolitical tensions are the highest and a lot of people predict that maybe conflict will come sooner rather than later. I hope it doesn't get to that point. But it's definitely an interesting trend to follow. And here in World Diplomacy, of course, we'll dedicate one episode further down the line on these geopolitical rivalries.
2: I think now it's a good time to talk about uh, very different example that falls kind of on the other side of the spectrum in those four categories that I talked about. Uh, and these would be uh, the case of the United States Agency for Global Media, USAGM. Um, this is an independent. US government agency responsible for overseeing and supporting international media organizations such as and these may sound familiar Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty uh, and the Office of Cuba Broadcasting. Uh, among some others, and it has an enormous budget. This year, uh, President Biden has requested to Congress an annual budget of $944 billion, and its reach around the world is massive as well. Last year, it reached over 410 million people across the world. Now, this agency plays a crucial role in promoting uh, freedom of press, supporting the free flow of information globally, uh, and empowering silence voices and minorities, and and sometimes opposition groups.
1: One one final note that I wanted to add regarding U.S. AGM is that under Donald Trump, there was a, he tried to actually change this organization and turn it more into a political voice that reflects uh, his personal positions. And um, there were some leading managers in USAGM that um, had to leave or were, were kind of forced out of their position, also uh, journalists under his term. So while well, we could say that at the moment, this is really one of the most powerful organizations in the world fighting for liberal democracy, if Donald Trump was to succeed in the upcoming election, this could change. Also, because many Republicans are quite skeptic um, about the, the channel in general and whether it should receive so much funding and they just want to cut funding uh, in general. And if you want to learn more about this discussion, feel free to listen to our episode on information warfare, where I discuss this issue in detail with uh, Carl Miller, one of the most, um, yeah, I think it's fair to say one of the most important experts in this field. And finally, I wanted to talk about Russia, a country that I've been uh, studying a lot when it comes to information warfare, Uh, in my humble opinion, um, it's the superpower at influencing election, the single most powerful country. Uh, I already mentioned it, the 2016 election of Donald Trump, Brexit these things and and many other developments throughout the world wouldn't have taken place without the Russians. I mean, for example, Brexit, but also the election of Donald Trump, both things were quite a close call. And these small differences, I think it's fair to attribute um, these changes to to Russia. And um, they have really shown the the state of the art at influencing other um, elections. And this issue has been discussed plentiful and if you again uh, our latest episode explains it in detail but um, just to make uh, another example here i wanted to talk about the case of mali because usually in the west we just talk about ourselves but um, i just briefly wanted to f- reflect on how russia actually did it in africa so mali is, is quite an interesting example because western countries spent billions of euros Just in this country specifically, and this money was invested in anti-terrorism campaigns, but also into development aid. And there was genuinely an effort to establish a democracy in Mali. And so we had elections, democratic elections, being held there, and um, the people of Mali voted for the representatives. This is not to say that these elections were perfect. The the West genuinely tried to make this country more liberal, more democratic. And then the Russians came in. First, they started to influence the population via social media campaigns. And they also funded um, local groups or civil society groups in the country. And then two coups were staged against the government in Mali. And now a military junta is ruling the country. So the Russians influenced them They were able to change the government even without an election taking place in the first place. And this military junta, of course, they they promised to restore democracy, but um, recently they just uh, postponed elections that were scheduled for February. And all the Western militaries that um, used to invest so much effort in, in this country, they left Mali and They were replaced by Russian mercenary groups and um, Russia is arguably the the most important non-African ally of uh, Mali. And Russia also successfully applied the same method in other nations uh, in in the region, Niger, Burkina Faso and so on. So um, yeah, it's just extreme to to think about this because the West invested so much effort But the Russians um, were able to influence it, the Russians with their much smaller economy and much smaller military might compared to the West. But being the superpowers of uh, influence, uh, this is what happened in Africa. And uh, yeah, a a final example that I wanted to give here.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, Hermes. I think they would take the the golden medal for influence, uh, election influence (laughs) for sure.
2: Um so now as we said election influence is not new it's been happening for a long time we even gave someone a medal for being the best at it, Uh, but you may be questioning then what is the importance moving forward in 2024? We have already been seeing these for a long time, Uh, and I think uh, the answer to that is that there are some new trends and phenomena that will change the landscape of election influence in this coming year, and these will lead us to the next block where we will be looking at, at some of these new trends and changes that we will see.
1: So in public discussions, uh, discourses at the moment, there is a considerable concern regarding the potential of social media, particularly when it's combined with artificial intelligence to wield a detrimental influence in upcoming elections. And in this section, we delve deeper into this topic. So Valeria, how do you think will those innovative met- methods of election meddling impact um, the elections that are set to take place in 2024
2: unfortunately i don't exactly have an answer for that full disclaimer we don't we don't know yet how and to what extent uh, artificial intelligence is going to affect the landscape of information operations But we do have some hints from things that have been happening in recent years since AI uh, became a more accessible and sophisticated tool. So I'm going to run through some examples that I think are interesting and can really show our uh, audience what AI-generated images and AI-generated videos or clips can do in elections. So... In 2023, we began to see how AI is adopting a more central role in information operations during elections. And I think the biggest example here was the election in Argentina uh, at the end of last year. This election became a new testing ground for for artificial intelligence in political campaigns. The New York Times called this election the first AI election, probably, probably one of many more to come this year.
0: That's, that's for sure. I mean, I think that we are all aware of all those fake videos or uh, ge- uh, artificial intelligence uh, generated images. And uh, I wanted to ask you, Valeria, if you have any specific example of something that did happen or uh, a clip in the Argentinian election regarding Millet that uh, it'd be interesting to mention here.
2: Yes. So the the two candidates in those elections were Javier Millet and Sergio Massa, And... These two candidates and their supporters used AI to modify existing images and videos and sort of create new campaign content that could be more visually attractive, funny, and and just spread uh, faster on social media. So, for example, Sergio Massa, and this is going to sound a bit ridiculous, but I'm just going to give these examples, used it to create videos that showed him as Indiana Jones or as a soldier in war and, and many others. And then in his campaign, he also used AI to depict Millet as unstable. Uh, so he did that by adding his face to scenes from films like Clockwork Orange and Fear of Loathing in Las Vegas. Now, these are obviously the most extreme cases. As I said, they may sound kind of ridiculous. And for for most of the Argentinians that were seeing that it was obviously fake. There was no doubt about that. Uh, but I think what, what really matters here is that even when it's clearly fake, AI-generated content contributes to confuse citizens. It floods the information ecosystem with content that users need to question, whether it's true or not. They need to go to fact-checking sites, sometimes to to guess whether they are being lied to, uh, and just adds a powerful tool and and a very fast tool to disinformation that can spread across social media platforms. So I actually want to point to another example here that was less extreme, uh, where there was a video, a fake video of Millet explaining how a market for human organs would work. Uh, this video was created by uh, Sergio Massa and his, his campaign uh, group, and it had a disclaimer that it was AI generated. But the thing about this content is that once it goes on social media and it becomes viral, those disclaimers may not be available to everybody. So I think this is, again, this is just lowering the costs and the barriers for the distribution of this type of content.
1: And I think this point is especially important the, the lowering the costs for actually doing this kind of stuff, because this means that as the cost goes down over time, everyone will be able to create those deep fakes. This is what a lot of experts are, are predicting. So the the most extreme supporters will at at some point be able to just um, yeah create, and videos that, that look authentic and real, and they will be able to influence other people with this type of stuff. I mean, we know how it goes. And um, people share videos on WhatsApp and um, on their private channels, and then they never hear about the, the, the fact-checking article coming out a couple of days later, um, or sometimes a fact-checking article is not published in the first place. So there, there's a massive power given into the hands of people And this is, of course, a major opportunity for other countries to to influence elections. I mean, in that case, uh, Valeria, you've you've mentioned the party was um, transparently showing, okay, that video is fake. But then we have examples where the party is not um, transparently um, attributing the video to itself, and it's just creating some fake persona on social media and then posting a video and it goes viral in certain groups. So I think that's really a a very dangerous development for democracy. If we can't judge whether content is is authentic or not anymore. And I hope that in the future there will be perhaps some automatic um, identification on social media where you can instantly see, okay, this video was AI generated, but then people will find a workaround against that. So Mm -hmm. so really interesting uh, discussion and and a thought I wanted to pick up here. Valeria, what I wanted to ask you is uh, whether we've seen that happening in other countries as well, except for Argentina.
2: Um, Yes, we absolutely have. I think the question soon will be where we have not seen this. Uh, In the U.S., for example, Republican candidate Ron DeSantis who, as many of you will know, he was running in the primary Republican election against Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. He used AI in his campaign to create an image of Donald Trump hugging Dr. Fauci, uh, who Dr. Fauci is often targeted by the right. He's seen as the biggest enemy, well, not biggest, but one of the big enemies of the the right in the U.S. for his role guiding the country during the COVID-19 pandemic and advising in favor of restrictions to contain the virus. Uh, Another example is a a candidate that was running to become Toronto's mayor who used AI to create images of homeless people uh, that were intended to illustrate, quote unquote, what the city would turn into if he was not elected. And another really interesting example, which was actually investigated by the think tank that I work for, uh, was about a pro-Chinese Communist Party network that used AI-generated images of the conflict in Gaza to spread anti-US sentiments. Now, they did these through different types of um, AI-generated images, and they were these images were not meant to fool anyone. You could see them and tell that they were fake. Um, but they they worked as graphic tools to illustrate the talking points that they usually share. Uh, and I think this is, uh, again, as you were saying, Arame, this is when, when it becomes a bigger challenge because it's changing the volume and it's lowering the cost and the barriers uh, of creating this type of content. And I think that what we saw with social media is that it lowered the, the barriers for distribution of uh, this information and propaganda. And now with AI, it's lowering the barriers of creation of that type of content. And by doing that, it's increasing the volume. So it's making it mm-hmm. harder to fact check and to be able to tell where this is coming from, what is the purpose, whether it's yeah. fake. Um, so it's creating that super interesting and complicated dynamic.
0: It's this this uh, concept that's brought up a lot, which is the, the post-truth, right? When people just cannot differentiate between what's real and what's not. Back in the day, it was hard to to figure out what's happening in the world. But today, I mean, there's just so much things out there. You don't really know which one is true that complicates things even more. So definitely artificial intelligence will empower this and take it to the next level. I think it's a technology that it's here uh, to stay and will drastically change every aspect of human life, human society, and our political institutions will not be exempted from this. Yeah,
2: and, and I should add to that. I mean, I've been focusing so far in examples of AI-generated images, but AI has also has u- offered other uses for information operations. Like, for example, uh, there is a network of fake accounts posting on X that we're using, um, X formerly Twitter, that were using chat GPT-generated content content to target uh, Alexei Navalny. This investigation was uh, also identified by by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And what I find really funny about this, this particular case is that the network was identified because one of the tweets included OpenAI's policy on targeted harassment. So the tweet read, quote unquote, I cannot fulfill this request as it goes against OpenAI's use case policy by promoting hate speech or targeted harassment. So that was obviously an automated response that they received and it was not meant to be posted, but it was probably because either the operation was automated or because those behind it did not speak English that it kind of filtered through and and went public. And these identified that the network was much bigger and kind of how they were using AI in their targeting of Alexi Navalny. And I think that it just shows, again, uh, the lowering of cost and barriers of information operations, making it easier across different languages. Um, And over time, probably it will become much more sophisticated because, I mean, this one was clearly not sophisticated at all. Um, And then lastly, I think audio fakes are also going to be a powerful new weapon in the online misinformation battlefield. Uh, and here I'm going to bring a recent example that has caused a lot of panic across the international community. This recent case happened during the election scene in Slovakia last September, and three days before the elections, when the country was in that period of reflection where the media is not supposed to talk about the election and the citizens are supposed to clear their minds about who they are going to vote for, uh, this fake audio clip uh, started to be spread around social media. And the clip, in the clip, you could hear a progressive party leader talking to a journalist about how to rig the vote. This became viral across Slovakia, and the, even though the recording was fake, by the time fact-checkers proved that, the recording had reached thousands of voters. And in the end, the progressive candidate went to lose the election to his rival and pro-Russian candidate, Roberto Fico. Um, So I think these big profile examples just give us an idea of the impact that these cases will have. And something that I want to add is that we're looking at big country elections that often have a lot of transparency and accountability, receive a lot of media attention, and there are usually a lot of fact-checkers working on that. But We have to think about what is going to happen to state and local elections, where there is a lot of resources put behind fact-checking every single element that goes into those campaigns. So I think that those may be the ones that suffer the consequences the most.
1: I just wanted to flag uh, one interesting aspect that Carl Miller highlighted in the episode that I did with him. And he said that people, uh, that there is a general tendency of, of humans that they believe in what confirms their own views. And this is especially dangerous when it comes to these AI developments because people are encountered with all these videos that confirm their views. So therefore, they are prone to, to believe the content of them as we've seen in Slovakia. I have my own relatives in Slovakia. I remember um, when I came over during, after the COVID period, many of them were talking about some, uh, yeah, or not, not many of them, uh, but, some of them um, in their surroundings were reflecting some conspiracy theories about the virus and stuff like that. Yeah. So they believed those people spreading those, uh, those messages and they did not believe the, the central authorities in, in the state that would say, no, this is a conspiracy theory, this is wrong, please get vaccinated. And the same thing can happen with those AI videos. They receive those videos, they see them, or AI audios in this case, they believe it. And even though there are some journalists one week afterwards saying, no, this is fake, this is um, generated by, by some computer, they, they are still reluctant
0: to believe this kind of stuff. I can also think of one personal example, and it's a platform that maybe sometimes we do not talk a lot, but it's uh, how these things impact WhatsApp chains and i've seen that in my family groups as well all my aunts sending and resending information that's clearly fake that's clearly uh disruptive but people just do not question it they just share it right so i think uh valeria that uh, countries had to be really careful how they govern their digital platforms right and how to make it harder for populists to use them for their own advantage those those uh halfway functioning democracies uh oligarchs can uh just go and, and try to do it single-handedly just as elon musk has tried to do with with x slash twitter and uh i i also think of the case of india uh that's blocking politicians activists and even the bbc in x uh slash twitter as well so i think that content moderation should should be a mandatory uh, element, just as, just as it is in Germany, more than a luxury that a controller such as Elon Musk can just say, yeah, no, not for me, not for my platform, right? So it's true that moderation can be abused, and uh, it could be just as, as a way to control media power, but I think that even though this can be exploited by undem- undemocratic actors, it does not mean that we have to take it away from the equation. Altogether, I think it's something to have in mind—an uh, interesting and powerful tool to control this, uh, especially when it can lead to hate crime or uh, violence, such as it happened with the case of the Rohingya population in in Myanmar. That Facebook was a tool that these uh, groups used to to incite hate. So that's just uh, my thoughts on this, guys. I don't know how you see how you see it.
1: Something I wanted to add here is um, a thought of one of the most uh, important scientists in the history of Austria, Sir Karl Popper. He once said that um, in democracy, there should never be tolerance tolerance for those who are intolerant. So that means if democracies start to accept those voices that are opposed to, to democracies themselves, then these democracies will cease to exist. So to defend our democracies, we have to defend the, 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 the voices that are trying to destroy it. And I think this is the perfect um, explanation of why democracies need content moderation, because if you do not um, stop these extremist voices, then eventually a lot of problems uh, will arise for, for democracies.
0: Well, guys, as we wrap up this episode, and I think we touched upon many interesting and insightful trends that will most likely have huge impacts in those elections that we'll see in 2024, I would just like to ask you if you have any final conclusions, final thoughts on everything we've said. Uh, I'll start with you, Valeria. Any any idea in there?
2: Well, I think we ended the episode on some sort of a pessimistic view of the year ahead. So I have some positive takes that I want to share um, to kind of wrap up the episode. Just this week, OpenAI, the AI research and deployment company commonly known for uh, its large language model, ChartGPT, release new policy ahead of the new elections. And I think this is, you know, one step in the right direction. This is only open AI. I mean, there are a lot of AI companies that are not taking the same steps and that maybe will never do. But, you know, it's setting things in motion and it's it's shaping the rules of, of this new emerging technology world. Then the second is that governments across the globe are also starting very slowly but starting nonetheless to focus more on how to regulate AI for example the. US released its first ever AI strategy at the end of the year and again I think this is this is going this is one step in the right direction and and we should acknowledge that and then the last one is that um, social media regulation has also made significant progress in recent years. Um, the EU through the Digital Service Act and the UK through the Online Safety Bill that now is the Online Safety Act have taken great steps to promote transparency and accountability in social media and protect users from online harms. So I think that um, we may be a bit late to this um, social media regulation after we've been seeing the harms uh, for a long time, but you know, I think there there's reasons to be optimistic that we are starting to realize the impact of technology and how governments need to be more on top of it, uh, mitigating the risks before they become real. I would say that after this year's election, we will learn more about how these technologies will affect elections, democracy, international relations, and pretty much everything in our day to day. And I'm looking forward to continue to analyze these changes at Warrior Diplomacy.
1: I think that at the moment, liberal states are fundamentally challenged. There are these uh, new technologies, authoritarian regimes, actively undermining their legitimacy. This is is a question of the survival of of liberal democracy in the end. If only two out of ten people in the U.S., believe that the government is pursuing actions in the interest of the American people and if this if um, trust is going down then this is a very concerning sign and i think there should be more of a debate in the west uh, about how we want to how this issue should be approached how how this this can be solved potentially and uh, at least from the perspective of those who are interested in in the continuation of liberal democracy. Because if we will not have this discourse, if no actions are taken, then there is a substantial risk that the very um, fundamental institutions that have been governing Western countries since the end of World War II are increasingly undermined and transformed into something less uh, liberal democratic and um, with the digital services act the european union has actually started implementing the first solution towards countering this problem they foresee increased transparency and um, other important means that will regulate um, major social media platforms the eu is also taking first steps to counter foreign interference so i think the the first Initial moments are here, but this issue, this discourse needs to go much further If um, from the from the perspective of those that want to defend liberal democracies.
0: And for my side, guys, I can just say how 2024 has started on fire. <laughs> I mean, I, I was not expecting things to start that crazy with everything going on in the Red Sea. Uh, in Ecuador, Uh, yes, we had the Taiwanese uh, elections as well. So I think these are little fragments of everything that we try to at least introduce in this first uh, episode. Of course, we cannot go into detail and talk about every little single thing happening in the world. We wanted to just maybe set the ground for how things will uh, happen uh, month by month. And yes, we'll try here in World Diplomacy to cover most of these cases. I mean, uh, there's really interesting things that will come up. Uh, The U.S. elections will definitely set the pace for what's gonna happen in uh, the Middle East crisis, in the Ukraine crisis. Uh, Elections in India will be quite huge, the same with uh, Latin American countries such as Mexico and El Salvador. So I think we have really interesting episodes coming along. So please, uh, listeners of the podcast, stay tuned. And just, I would like to make a final recommendation of an episode that we uh, discussed about uh, the future of global surveillance. Uh, You'll find the link here in the show notes. And uh, I think it's another really interesting episode where we talk about everything going on in the the digital realm. So with that being said, guys, Armes, Valeria, thank you so very much for your time. And uh, Valeria, welcome to the podcast. We are more than happy to have you here. And I am sure that the the listeners will as well. Uh, Take care and enjoy the first months of 2024. Thank mm-hmm. you.